This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Good afternoon and welcome to the Friday edition of Trumpet Hour. This is when we review the most important news of the week. I'm Philip Nice, and with me here in our Edmond, Oklahoma studio and connecting from our offices in Edstone, England, is our panel of writers from thetrumpet.com. We have Richard Palmer. Good afternoon. Andrew Miller. Hello. Rafaro Manyepa. Hello. And Mihailo Zekic. Good to be here. War in Europe. It is still raging, and it is getting worse. Joe Biden has shown increasing support for Ukraine from the United States, but Russian President Vladimir Putin has not backed down. For this, we'll go to Rafaro Manyepa. Rafaro, tell us the latest developments with the war in Ukraine. Yeah, so we were speaking last week about how Russia had had quite a few losses and, and that it had a bad week and to watch for uh, the reaction from Russia to see uh, <laughs> increasing aggression as a response to that. And that's exactly what we've had this past week. Uh, this is from the Daily Mail. They reported on this yesterday. Uh, Russia unleashed uh, an 81 missile barrage across Ukraine yesterday. It killed uh, at least nine people. It uh, targeted energy infrastructure in the capital of Kiev, in Odessa, in Kharkiv, and in Zaporozhizhia. And it, it, it was a lot. There were so many different missiles used. One One interesting one is that Russia deployed its rare Kinzhal hypersonic missiles. It deployed six of these. And the reports are that Ukraine isn't capable of defending against this. The Telegraph had an article about it and said that um, these, these missiles can fly at more than 12 times the speed of sound. And it's really interesting that, you know, as, as bad as Russia has been, all the terrible things that it's done throughout this war, you can also argue that it still has a lot more to give that it hasn't even started deploying yet a lot of weaponry a lot of force a lot of aggression that it still has to use and that's considering all the help that ukraine has had all the assistance that it's received from the us and from europe and this 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 aggression is evident in what happened in the what then happened also in the city of bakhmut where uh Reports have been coming out now that Russia has claimed claimed the eastern part of the city. And if you've noted anything about the war, if you hear reports about Russia winning, like that, that's such a rarity that you have to you have to believe that that's real because most of what we hear is just positive Ukraine news, positive Ukraine developments. Right. And the city of Bakhmut is very important. Um, back back in World War Two. It was uh, it, it 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 could it could play how Stalingrad did in determining the winner of the war between Russia and Germany at that time. And both of Ukraine and Russia today have demonstrated a desire to win it. But Russia's got so much more firepower, so much more intensity. A lot of analysts. There's an article from uh, 1945 here that says Bakhmut could be a modern day Stalingrad that decides the Ukraine war. 
it really could be a turning point in this war. So these two things happening this week do show how much more aggressive Russia has been, just as we spoke about. And we can expect to see a lot more of that going on forward. Obviously, this war is something that a lot of people, a lot of our listeners are following closely. Uh, just, just from the sheer destruction, the carnage, it's right there in Eastern Europe where we're seeing war unfold. We're seeing it from every angle on cell phone video, drone video, uh, and it's got this terrible transfixing quality to it. But is, is that, is the shock value of it, you know, this sort of terrible telegenic nature of watching a war um, unfold like this, uh, is that the ultimate reason why this is among the most important news this week? No, there's a lot more to it. And and that's not to discount just how bad it is. And because I think uh, in this 1945 article, they said that the, the battle in Bakhmut, they called it a meat grinder. They said it's one of the one of the grimiest, dirtiest uh, scenes of fighting ever. But it's it's also important to expand a little bit. You look at what we've already said. America has given Ukraine a uh, hundred billion dollars plus in support for this war. Russia's still going. Russia's fighting, it's winning, it's deploying new weaponry. And it's important to note what happened on Wednesday. The Secretary General of NATO held a meeting with EU defense ministers on Wednesday discussing what they could do about what's going on, discussing the potential fall of Bakhmut, discussing how Europe can support uh, Ukraine more. And here's some of the talk that came out of that meeting. Uh, the Slovak defense minister said that it will be easier to support Ukraine if there were an entity, a joint entity, let's say the European Commission, for example, to organize the procurement of ammunition, which other European countries could then join. And then one European internal market commissioner says, European industry is not adapted for the needs of high-intensity conflict our collective defense industry has to switch to war economy mode. And then one Swedish defense contractor said, I think that many countries have had a wake-up call and need to replenish and increase their stocks. That's a very important reaction that we're seeing here. You know, European defense ministers, business contractors, they're, they're talking about this war as a federalizing catalyst. They're talking about the war and uh, pointing to solutions helping Ukraine, but would also knit Europe closer together. They're talking about boosting the collective EU defense industry uh, in order to supply the Ukraine with munitions. And Europe's support of Ukraine wouldn't be just fiscal, but it would be a support that would create mechanisms within Europe itself to prepare Europe if it were involved in high-intensity conflict, which is very important to note. It's, it's such a, a, a massive thing, and it really does feed into what we've spoken about in terms of Bible prophecy. And what um, if you look at what Mr. Armstrong wrote what was it in 1956 he said one of the great things urging europe on uh what's going to get them to get along in, in creating a united states of europe he says is fear of what's going on in the kremlin and in the soviet union 
he said, Europe is losing confidence in the United States as having a military umbrella over them to protect them. They want their own military force to protect themselves. That's the way they feel over there. And that's a chief incentive to unite them. And that's taking place. And that's something that Mr. Flurry, our editor-in-chief, has spoken about constantly. Every time Russia's done something, every time it's been aggressive, he said, watch Germany, watch Europe, watch how they're going to react. And that's the, that's the big picture that we need to look at here as far as all the, all the developments in the Ukraine war and what we're going to be seeing going forward. You and I were talking just, just a few minutes ago about how there are so many aspects to the Ukraine conflict and, uh, and, and so many other things going on beyond the Ukraine conflict. Uh, but we should keep an eye on Europe's reaction. You're saying keep, keep your eye on Europe's reaction, European militarization, European unification. And that's based on, as you say, uh, the forecasts of Herbert W. Armstrong and Gerald Flurry. Where can Trumpet Hour listeners go for more information? Uh, there's an excellent article by Mr. Gerald Flurry. He wrote it uh, around uh, June, July last year. It's called Germany is Transforming Before Your Eyes. It does give a good uh, overall picture of the European reaction that we can anticipate and have seen already uh, in this Ukraine war. And then also uh, the booklet that Mr. Joe Flurry wrote, The Prophesied Prince of Russia, uh, to get a full overview of what Vladimir Putin is doing. And also it does talk about the European reaction as well. The Prophesied Prince of Russia and Germany is transforming before our eyes. Thank you, Mr. Manyepa. Russia, a great power, a nuclear power, uh, has not had a completely free hand in Ukraine, as we were just discussing. It has obviously met resistance there, and for all its dominance and for all the aggression of Vladimir Putin, it has obviously met significant resistance, and not just in Ukraine. Updating us on the situation between Russia and one of its southern neighbors, the nation of Georgia, is Richard Palmer at our Edstone office. Richard, uh, refresh us. Where is Georgia and what has been occurring there this week? Yeah, probably important to, to make clear we're not talking about the state. Uh, don't worry. There are no mass protests that I know of in Atlanta or anything like that. Uh, we are talking about the country of Georgia in the Caucasus region so on this mountainous region between the black sea and the caspian sea uh, just south of russia and we've seen mass protests erupt you know they've been kind of boiling away for a while but they've really erupted this this week about a uh foreign agents law that this country has been um close to enacting and uh, that's been the trigger. It's about a lot more than this. You know, Georgia is one of the kind of key contested nations between the West and Russia. And, uh, you know, we heard from Rafara there, a history of some of the, our coverage that we've had on, on Russia. And, and one of the key moments in terms of sparking fear in Europe was when Russia invaded Georgia in 2008. Uh, I was in Israel, I think, at the time then, but I... You know, people would go on holiday from Israel to Georgia. It was just interesting to see the level of real fear and drama that that that, that invasion created, similar to the invasion of Ukraine. And uh, for a long time, Georgia has been this uh, pretty anti-Russian country, not a hugely powerful one, um, but they've liked to poke the bear. You know, I remember around that time they they put in a Eurovision Song Contest entry, not not a subject we talk about hugely on the. Uh, 
we can review, though, uh, my excuse for claiming Georgia as part of Europe is their participation in it. Um, <laughs> but they put in a song we don't want to put in when this um, song was when this contest was being held in Europe. You know, they would have all of these different. I mean, the contest was being held in Moscow. You know, they had all of these different ways of, of um, showing how much they disliked Russia. It ended up with them being invaded in 2008 and uh, Russia carved out a chunk of uh, breakaway territories. And since that war in 2008, Georgia's government has moved closer to Russia, not as overt as somewhere like Belarus, uh, but they stopped poking the bear. And the, the current president has links to Russian oligarchs that's caused a fair bit of suspicion. And, uh, you know, Russia's government has kind of packaged this as, you know, we're pro-Georgia, we're anti-Russia, we want independence, but we're a tiny nation. We've got to stop poking the bear, otherwise we're just going to get flattened. But a lot of people have long suspected that there was more to it than that. And that the the new incoming government and some of these new individuals were acting more as puppets of Russia. And so then they bring out this foreign agents law, which is very closely modeled on a law that's already been passed in Russia. And what this foreign agents law does is it, it limits the amount that countries, uh, uh, organizations, NGOs funded by other countries can operate. And it allows the government to come down and shut down things like pro-government groups and uh, pro-democracy groups because they're saying, well, you've got too much funding from outside the country. You've got to close down. And Russia has used this in a pretty dictatorial fashion. They've used it to go after the free press. Um, Mikhailo here has had some interesting conversations in the past with Memorial, this group that revolves around uh, documenting Stalin's crimes. They've used that to kind of attack and cover up a lot of that history because uh, – you know, and, and as an excuse to go after Memorial and, and, and groups like that that you know just exist to to teach truth about communism. Uh, and so for for Georgia to be copying that, this really inflamed these fears that our country's been taken over by Russia and that our government is in bed with Russia. So it brought out mass protests. The government since then, I think it was just yesterday, they withdrawn the law. They said, we're not going to do that. But the protests continue because that foreign agents bill was just the trigger. And it was a, it was was it's because of these wider fears of Russia is taking over Georgia that these protests continue. And we'll have to see over the weekend and on into next week uh, whether this has damped down the flames. But I don't think it will have. Uh, and I think it's it's quite possible that these protests could just continue to get bigger. So why is this among the most important news of the week? I think if you look at the competition between Russia and the West for the post-Soviet space, this is one of the big stories of the last 30 years, of the fall of the Soviet Union and who is going to control these different countries. That's what the war in Ukraine is ultimately all about uh, so I think that in itself is is a big story. The Caucasus are, are underrated, in my opinion, important geopolitical region. Uh, you know, Stalingrad and World War II, a conflict that as much as any other battle kind of determined the outcome of World War II, that battle was really about who is going to control the Caucasus and about who is going to control ultimately Georgia and Azerbaijan, um, because Stalingrad was kind of the key transportation terminus for for getting resources from that region up to Russia or up to Moscow and to the rest of Russia. And that area was crucial for energy supplies then. It's less crucial now, but it's still very important. You know, If you're going to get gas from Central Asia, if you're going to be able to bypass Russia and not allow Russia to hold you to ransom, 
then you need a foothold in the Caucasus and you need allies in the Caucasus. If Russia wants to stop that can ha- from happening and maintain its status as an energy superpower, it needs to have control over the Caucasus. So you've got these long-term trends. I think more important, or more immediately, it ties right into this war in Ukraine that you know, Russia occupies parts of Georgia's territory. There's those two breakaway regions. And so if you have an upset here now, uh, that could be hugely damaging to Russia that you could have now another flank opened in this war. Uh, There's quite a lot of people now, especially those in Georgia, looking and saying, we have a huge opportunity. Russia has moved huge numbers of its troops out of the Caucasus. The Caucasus have been a a very troublesome region for Russia. They had the war with Georgia. Vladimir Putin came to power in the first place, really, because of his brutal brutal, uh, crushing of the Chechen rebels within Russia's own territory. Uh, all of those have gone. So there's a lot of Georgians Georgians looking at this and saying, well, we have a fantastic opportunity. We might actually be able to take back these two breakaway regions because Russia's so busy in Ukraine. Uh, So uh, exactly as Rafaro said, we've kind of, I think, seeing Russia make, Bakhmut could be a a key turning point in this war, uh, but there's this other danger here. And so, you know, that's where uh, it ties in directly to the, the course of this war. And I think this is where it ties into Bible prophecy as well. And we've got the, Mr. Flurry, Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry, he has this quote in The Prophesied Prince of Rosh. Uh, it's quite a startling quote, really. He says, Putin has a level, as a long pattern of diabolical evil on the level of Joseph Stalin. An abundance of fruits prove that. Uh, and then later he said, no leader in Russia has equaled Putin's diabolical evil since Joseph Stalin. And I think that was a really eye-catching quote, especially at the time. Because Stalin is the second largest mass murderer in the history of the planet. Uh, you know, in terms of body count at the time and even now, Putin didn't equal Stalin. Uh, but what Mr. Flurry was saying was the fruits proved that you know the, he's got that level of evil. Under the same conditions, he would kill the same number of people. You know, he's he's got that potential for for that is there. And I think you see that in Ukraine. You see that with some of the brutal things happening in Ukraine. You see it in just the way Russia is taking out children, for example, so that they can have their Ukrainian identity erased and handed over to Russian families, genocide. You see it in um, you know, these horrific pictures that you saw as Russia withdraws from an area and the systematic killing and torture. You saw it years ago with Putin's uh, attack and, and murder of journalists. And I think when you look at this when you look at Bible prophecy, yes, there are a lot of people. You can see why people in the West are kind of cheering on Georgia. Yeah, this is an opportunity to hurt Russia even more, to hurt this evil leader uh, even more. But you look at the way uh, Russia has responded to these times of t- kinds of crises before, and I think this has the potential to b- bring out a whole new level of evil and viciousness in in Vladimir Putin. And Jeremiah had a really interesting article back in 2002. If you're kind of interested in in, in macro history and broad trends in history and and using that to understand your world i think this is just a an outstanding a fascinating article and um it's called russia's dark rider and it talks about this kind of process where russia repeatedly gets these leaders who look like reformers just like vladimir putin did initially uh and many others have before peter the great catherine the great uh even lenin and then they're faced with big crises, they're faced with rebellions, they're faced with uprisings, and they, without fail, become incredibly brutal. 
and they deal with these crises with a huge level of bloodshed. You know, even people like Catherine the Great, who's carrying on a correspondence with Voltaire, who's the darling of the Enlightenment. She faces a Cossack rebellion and, and resorts to mass reprisals and mass killings and all of these kind of things. Uh you know, Bible prophecy tells us that you know, Russia's not going anywhere as a major power. We're not going to see the defeat of Russia, the breakup of Russia. Vladimir Putin is this prophesied leader, the Prince of Rosh. Uh, he's going to play a major role in end time events. He is not going anywhere. And so really it, it, the pressure that's building on Vladimir Putin with this long war, longer than maybe he anticipated war in Ukraine, now the potential for a major complication in Georgia. And we're just going to see more of what Mr. Flurry talked about, more diabolical evil on the level of Joseph Stalin. That's what we've got the potential for. And I think that's the kind of thing that an uprising in Georgia and then competitions into the Caucasus, you know, this could provoke a, a much more serious reaction than we've seen so far and even a more brutal reaction than we've seen so far from Putin and Russia. So expect Putin to stay and uh, expect to see Russia uh, go nowhere. So now is the time to go to thetrumpet.com and look for Russia's Dark Rider as well as Putin's War on Russia. And on Monday, look for massive anti-Russia protests erupt in Georgia. Thank you, Mr. Palmer. Every week, the most important region to watch is the Middle East. There are no great powers there, but what happens here affects the world. Mihailo Zekic is also there in our Edstone, England office, and he's been monitoring this region for a while. Mihailo, what's the major news out of the Middle East this week? Well, first off, I like to say, in one sense, there are quite a few budding great powers, and this major news item relates to that. The Wall Street Journal uh, yesterday released a bit of a bombshell article about Saudi Arabia. It made an interesting, uh, shall we say, a proposition. Um, as a lot of our listeners know, Israel, the state of Israel, has been making different deals with Arab countries for the last few years, like the United Arab Emirates, uh, Morocco. Saudi Arabia has been the big prize that they haven't been able to get. It's a G20 economy. Um, second largest uh, oil reserves in the world, a major enemy of Iran. And the Wall Street Journal reported yesterday um, Saudi Arabia is willing to start a normalization agreement. But as big as news as that would be, it's what's even bigger is what the Saudis are asking in return. Now, past um, agreements between Israel and the Arab world have been facilitated with the United States. And Saudi Arabia is asking America to provide security guarantees and more importantly, to help it start its own nuclear program. Now, a lot of countries make sometimes claim that this is for energy purposes, that kind of thing. This is Saudi Arabia we're talking about. <laughs> this is like one of the, the most important fossil fuel exporters worldwide. Second largest oil reserves in the world, largest oil producers in OPEC, and they're asking for a nuclear program. And the elephant in the room is that their great foe across the Persian Gulf, Iran, which we talked about on the Wednesday program, they're wrapping up their nuclear program. They almost got a nuclear bomb. Saudi Arabia almost certainly wants their own nuclear bomb, too. And uh, the Wall Street Journal, they, they cited this. Their the sources they got to were people working at think tanks that have been to Saudi Arabia recently and talking with different people that are moving the deal forward. So this isn't governments uh, making official announcements as of yet. But the picture they're painting is that Saudi Arabia is getting 
quite unnerved with what's happening in Iran, and they're trying to do all they can to match Iran as a military power. Um, and the other thing that's interesting, again, is that they're saying they want security guarantees. At this point, Saudi Arabia is a huge military partner of America. Over the years, America has been giving billions and billions of dollars for weapons, for security coordination. I mean, they fought together in the Gulf War. Uh, America already has a huge presence in the Persian Gulf with its navy. So the fact that the Saudis are asking for these kinds of guarantees, and they specified if Saudi Arabia is attacked by an external enemy, that means America will come to Saudi Arabia's aid. This shows how scared they're getting and how much they really want to start ramping up their military heft weights in the region, even if it means getting going nuclear or if it means getting into a formal alliance with the United States. So what's the significance here uh, beyond the obvious uh, bombshell, pardon the pun, uh, that Saudi and Iran could be in a nuclear arms race that neither one is is uh, trying too hard to hide? Uh, what's What's the larger significance here? Well, there's quite a few things. For one thing, as I mentioned before, like perhaps some people look at the Middle East as uh, a place where we don't have too many great powers. Israel already has nuclear weapons. Iran's on the cusp of nuclear weapons. Saudi Arabia wants nuclear weapons. We're get basically getting the most volatile part of the world where everybody wants the most dangerous weapons imaginable. And of all these countries have people that, given the right circumstances say, unlike America and Russia in the Cold War, are very willing to use it. I mean, we talked about on the Wednesday program before the prophecy in Matthew 24 about how before the second coming, things will get so bad there'll be no flesh saved alive. That could only happen through weapons of mass destruction. We're seeing countries, more and more increasingly unstable countries, get these weapons. That's one aspect of that. Another interesting aspect, again, nothing's finalized as of yet. We'll see what if Israel agrees to this, but the fact that if this deal goes through, that Israel would trust Saudi Arabia with a nuclear bomb says a lot. I mean, Saudi Arabia is not Iran. It's not this revolutionary government trying to sow chaos all over the world, but it is. it still has one of the harshest uh, interpretations of Sharia law, Islamic law in the world. It is an Islamist state. Most of the 9-11 hijackers were Saudis, including Osama bin Laden himself. Or I guess he wasn't a hijacker, but he organized it. And there's still debate on how much the Saudi government was involved in that. Saudi Arabia is one of the last countries you'd want to trust with a nuclear weapon, especially if you're the Jewish state that half the Arab world wants to kill and destroy completely anyway. And the other interesting thing, I think, from this deal is, according to the sources the journal cited, the Palestinian issue wasn't that much of a sticking point at this point before the Saudi government has said, we'll recognize Israel when Israel recognizes a Palestinian state. Apparently, this isn't even on the table anymore. And there are even recent um, surveys done among the Saudi public, whereas before a majority of them were against uh, recognizing Israel to now a majority of them don't really have that hostility to Israel anymore. So in a sense, the tide is turning against the Palestinians. Before the Palestinians, one of their biggest... Uh, cards to play with uh, negotiations with the Israelis is that none of the Arab world is going to support you if you don't give us our state. The whole Middle East hates you. If you want to change this, you give us our state. And we're seeing 
these moderate Arabs like the Saudis start to turn their backs on the Palestinians and not really worry about that anymore. Another prophecy um, Mr. Fleury's pointed to quite a bit is in Zechariah 14 about um, uh, the Palestinians getting riled up and taking Jerusalem in uh, our newly updated King of the South booklet. Mr. Fleury has pointed to Iran being the main instigator of getting control of Jerusalem. At this point, the Palestinian government, Mahmoud Abbas, uh, the Palestinian Authority, they're not the nicest group of people, but they're not exactly stooges of Iran either. They've been looking to other Arab countries for support, like Saudi Arabia, like the Arab League. And this support is starting to dwindle, and it suggests that for the Palestinian Authority, they might get desperate to the point where they start shopping around for other allies, shopping around for people that are not going to do any deals with Israel no matter what and just do whatever they can to get what they want. So what should we expect to happen and uh, what what can we read to learn more? Well, there is uh, obviously that covered a lot. Uh, what Probably the best um, one-stop shop to <laughs> look into this would be Mr. Our editor-in-chief, Mr. Gerald Fleury, wrote an article back in 2020 when some of these Arab deals were happening called Deadly Flaw in Mideast Peace Deals, which talks about some of the uh, blind trust Israel's putting in some of these countries that in prophecies like Psalm 83, for example, are prophesied to go against Israel in the end. I mean, if Saudi Arabia had nuclear weapons, that would make them much more of a potent force uh, about that. The King of the South booklet that I also mentioned, that covers a little bit about Iran getting control of Jerusalem and the Palestinian issue, if our readers wanted to look into that. But for uh, the main reading and probably what would best hit the nail on the head, Deadly Flaw and Mideast Peace Deals is what I'd recommend. All right. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Zekic. Regarding the conflict in Ukraine that we were discussing earlier, we were mentioning the suffering of children. Uh, sad to say that when monitoring news in America this week, one of the biggest stories, one of the most significant stories is uh, the suffering of children of a different kind. For this story, uh, we'll go to Andrew Miller. Yeah, for months now, I've been hearing rumors and uh, and kind of like low-level news reports about the amount of sexually explicit material in school libraries in America. Well, this week, we probably finally got our biggest uh, expose uh, proving this is really happening when Florida Governor Ron DeSantis played a shocking six-minute video at the start of a press conference. Uh, they had to uh, make sure there were no children in the room, and most social media companies have refused to air it because for six minutes, it basically just gave uh, video footage of the content of textbooks in schools in Florida. Uh, I actually haven't watched the video. I, I chose not to. I've read the press accounts, the press uh, summarizations of what it says, uh, and, and even most of that I'm not comfortable <laughs> talking about on this program. Uh, but to suffice it to say, uh, this is definitely not an example of school administrators just being overzealous in their um, desire to teach children about the birds and the bees. Uh, this is a very vile homosexual and transgender uh, sex acts that are being pushed on um, children who haven't even hit puberty yet in some cases. Um, and one of the most interesting things uh, with this is that uh, we were really getting a spotlight on this in Florida because um, 
Ron DeSantis is putting a spotlight on it. Uh, but it's not unique to Florida. I wrote an article earlier this week uh, about an 11-year-old boy in Maine who shocked a school board there by reading from some of these same books. And when I, when I first heard this, I was... Because uh, actually the book uh, Gender Queer by Maya Kobabe was uh, highlighted in both cases. And I'm like, what are the statistical chances that this particular book by an author I've never heard of uh, pops up in a rural village in Maine and in Florida? And in another case, I don't have time to talk about this week, in Pennsylvania, it's like there has to be some amount of centralized planning here and and lo and behold uh, there is one of our uh, church members from California alerted me to this and I dug into it the Claremont Institute has put together a 67 page report documenting how there's four primary federal grants the government uses for sex education Uh, the vast majority of that money well over half goes to Planned Parenthood Uh, and so it looks like the institution Planned Parenthood is using taxpayer dollars to fund sex education programs in public schools across America. And they seem to be the nexus of the, the wheel from which all the spokes come off of is like why these same books showing graphic cartoons of homosexual sex acts are popping up in Maine and in Florida and in Pennsylvania. It's not just that the librarians there have the same taste in books, uh, but that Planned Parenthood's actually using government funds to make sure the same books make it into all these schools. You told me about that uh, bef- before the show, and I found that shocking to uh, not just the content of the the books, but the coordination, the the intent uh, behind it. Your article is online right now. Sixth grader stands against sexually explicit material at school. Uh, where else can we uh, learn about this? Uh, well, definitely the other things that we can put in the, the show notes are Herbert W. Armstrong's landmark book, The Missing Dimension in Sex, that gives the, uh, the Bible overview on what to actually tell your child about the birds and the bees. Uh, and then we also have a, another book, Redefining Family, that probably needs updated with some of this stuff someday. It's more about the um, the homosexual movement, but it really does highlight the centralized planning in legalizing gay marriage and other things that um, kind of give some background information on that this isn't just a grassroots uh, uh, a grassroots movement, but there is actually organized planning to normalize both homosexuality and transgenderism across America that's going after kids before they even reach um, uh, even reach puberty, which is uh, one of the most satanic aspects about that. Because like some of these, it's like your, your mind kind of gets set during puberty, but you start targeting kids before they get there, and you can actually even warp <laughs> what your ultimate sexual orientation's going to be. Sex becoming a clear and present danger. Now would be the time if you haven't ordered it uh, to request a free copy of Missing Dimension in Sex by Herbert W. Armstrong, as you mentioned there, as well as Redefining Family. Thank you, Mr. Miller. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. Coming up, we mentioned watching Europe's reaction, unification, militarization. We'll bring you one important development with Germany's attitude toward 
militarization. The historic disaster that was America's military withdrawal from Afghanistan was a disaster and is a disaster. We'll get an update. And what about the relationship between the United States and its rising adversary, China? We'll talk about that, as well as the most recent drop of the Twitter files. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. I'm Philip Nice, and we'll be right back. Listening to Trumpet Hour, the week in review. This is Trumpet Hour. I'm Philip Nice. Keep your eye on German militarization. We mentioned that earlier. The attitudes of the Germans toward the military are changing. How? We'll go back to Richard Palmer. Yes, I think uh, Rafaro really introduced this subject for me in the first half uh, when he talked about how you know consistently Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry has talked about as you see uh, Russia you know, invading Georgia, invading Ukraine, the most important place to watch is Germany and watch for their reaction, watch for it to change Germany. And we had a couple of polls this week that show it doing exactly that. So first of all, there was a poll published by the public broadcaster ZDF on March 3rd, and they found that 62% of Germans wanted to increase military spending, even if it meant cutting spending elsewhere or taking on debt. And only 32 were percent were against this idea. And this extra spending, this was on top of the historic 100 billion that Germany announced last year. So 62% are in favor of going even further. And that's an important turnaround for Germany. You know, this is a Germany that has that has spent you know, since the end of the Cold War, since the early 90s, cutting defense spending to boost social spending and to get its debt under control. And that program has been pretty much universally popular across the left and the right. Now we're in the opposite. It's universally popular to boost spending. Now, the poll also found that they weren't willing to sacrifice a day off work to boost spending. That's uh, what Denmark did actually recently, quite uh, surprisingly. They they uh, did something that kind of even hurts the man in the street and to a certain extent, ending a day off, uh, ending a public holiday. And they said, we're going to dedicate all the extra tax revenue that comes from this extra day of work to boosting our, our budget. So I guess they asked Germans if they wanted to do the same thing. They weren't um, quite at that stage yet. But you know, watch watch as Putin continues down this path that we talked about in the first half and, and see how these attitudes change in Germany. And then the second poll, there was another um, more recent poll asking about conscription. This found that 61%, so very similar level, uh, wanted conscription return. Just over a third said they wanted both men and women conscripted into the German military. So you know, there's a longer discussion to be had about volunteer forces versus conscription and professionals versus conscripts. But I think the, the, the simple takeaway here is that Germans are on board with having a bigger army. They're looking for ways of conscription is going to give us more soldiers, you know, whatever we need to do, borrowing money, cutting social spending. It, if that's going to help us to have a bigger army, we need to do that. And so that is exactly what what we've been warning about for years you know all the way back in 2004 when vladimir putin kind of took his first steps to becoming a more authoritarian dictator 
Mr. Flurry warned of a fear that will hasten the uniting of the European Union. When Russia invaded Georgia, like we were talking about in the first half in 2008, Mr. Flurry wrote, will a crisis occur over Ukraine? And he said, watch Europe to see how it responds to these dramatic developments in Asia. So this is right in line with what we've been expecting. We had He had an article last year in the trumpet print, Germany is transforming before your eyes, that goes into some of these ways that, that Germany is, is changing. But these are smallish news events. You know, they're just polls, but they confirm exactly what we've been saying for years and continue to watch this mind change within Germany. Great. Thank you for that, Mr. Palmer. Germany is transforming before your eyes is the article. You can check it out at thetrumpet.com. We could not get through a week in review probably without mentioning the major rising power in the world, China. Here to give us a little bit about the relationship between China and the United States, we'll go back to Rafaro Manepa. Yeah, so China and the United States have never really been bosom buddies. Uh, but there's there's always been a certain modicum of respect and some diplomatic niceties that both of, both of these countries have have upheld in their relations with one another with the the economic uh, dependence that they have on one another. But that seems to be changing, and Ch- China's leading the way in this. On Monday, here's what Chinese President Xi Jinping said. He said, "Western countries led by the U.S. have implemented all-round containment." encirclement and suppression against us, bringing unprecedentedly severe challenges to our country's development. That that brazen name drop of America, direct criticism by the president of China. Usually if something like that happens, it's by lower level individuals and they certainly wouldn't directly name a country as big as the United States. That's that's unusually direct criticism coming from China. And they doubled down on this the following day, China did. Uh, Their foreign minister, Qin Gang, said on Tuesday that China and the U.S. are veering toward conflict and confrontation if Washington doesn't change course. Uh, uh, Minister Gang then said, if the United States does not hit the brake but continues to speed down the wrong path, no amount of guardrails can prevent derailing and there surely will be conflict and confrontation. Such competition is a reckless gamble, he said, with the stakes being the fundamental interests of the two peoples and even the future of humanity. Saying that the United States have, has deviated from the path of reason, it's, it's pretty rich coming from China, of all people. That's that's very important to note. And saying that it's the United States that has, has put them on a collision course. But when you look into it and, and think about it, it's clear that China here is, is very brazenly fomenting discord between the United States. And that's, that's something that they wouldn't take lightly. That's not a decision they take lightly. They're aiming to replace American... Uh, hegemony with their own and they want to be the dominant power now they're showing that they're not afraid of saying you know uh, (laughs) giving rhetoric that can really ignite these tensions here these are major statements from a major leader of a major power against a major power Uh, where where can we go for more information on this this situation 
these remarks do point to a trend that we've been talking about for a while at the Trumpet. And uh, our Trumpet editor-in-chief, Mr. Gerald Flurry, uh, wrote an article called What Are the Times of the Gentiles? in reference to a time in the Bible uh, that Jesus Christ himself uh, called the times of the Gentiles when uh, power-hungry tyrants would dominate the world, replacing an era of rule by nations like the United States and Britain, benevolent, uh, <laughs> benevolent times uh, replaced by these these leaders who have very little regard for their subjects. And Mr. Gerald Flurry said, I'll just quote this from it. He says, uh, "The times of the Gentiles are a catastrophic storm, and we're on the outer edges of this catastrophic storm. And China's actions prove that Gentiles are rising to power before our very eyes. And this is just one of many Gentile nations growing more aggressive." on the world scene. That's why it's so important to note this aggression from China and why we should pay attention to what they say in this deviation from diplomatic norms. So again, that article is What Are the Times of the Gentiles by Mr. Gerald Flurry. The uh, Chinese leader you mentioned there worrying about the future of humanity, not very far off <laughs> from what uh, Mr. Gerald Flurry writes there in the Times of the Gentiles that that uh, worldwide storm. As we said, Afghanistan has been in and then back out of the news. It's back in the news uh, for some predictably unpleasant reasons. We'll hear why from Mihailo Zekic. Yes, so the 8th of March this week was International Woman's Day. When I was young, that was a big deal with some of my family. My mother came from the Eastern Bloc. But in one country in particular, they don't really have too much to celebrate. That country is, of course, Afghanistan. On, on the 8th, the United Nations, to commemorate the day, released this uh, statement just on the state of what women's rights looks like after uh, almost two years of Taliban rule since they took over in 2021. And this uh, statement they made was, I thought, was particularly sobering. Um, they said that since the Taliban had uh, come over, they have, quote, effectively erased progress on women's rights in the intervening 20 years. So, I mean, I think all the progress, all the blood, toil, tears and sweat, all the billions and billions of dollars that America has put into that country trying to turn into a democracy where individual liberties for for all are respected that's basically all gone down the drain. And they, uh, the UN put a few examples on how women's rights have been curtailed. Um, uh, women and even girls can't go to secondary school past grade six um, or higher education for, uh, for four months. They were banned from even going to things like amusement parks, public baths, gyms, sports clubs. They're, it's illegal now for a woman to travel over 75 kilometers without a uh, a, a guardian, a male guardian or, or a chaperone. Uh, and, of course, there's a lot of things that um, even in the U.N. report that have been that we know about that are even more horrific, like teenage girls being forced to marry these uh, these uh, terrorist fighters that cap that captured the country and that sort of thing. Uh, the reason it, it, it stuck out to me is that we, we on on this show and on and in our website thetrumpet.com we've talked a lot about how disastrous the american withdrawal was and how it was planned how this didn't have to happen but through ulterior motives and machinations going on in washington this happened 
you hear a lot of people on the political left in the in the Democratic Party talking about how women's rights have not gone far enough, how uh, and you hear in things like the abortion debate, uh, women in politics, etc. And again, as the trumpet has covered quite a bit here, you have the, the this re, this administration, this presidency saying these kinds of things. And at the same time, they single handedly were are or or more than anybody else are responsible for what I just recited to you. They are the reason that Afghani teenage girls are getting married to to terrorists and that they're no longer allowed to enter into high school. And so aside from being blatantly hypocritical, this shows that there is quite a a much more sinister agenda going on beyond a lot of rhetoric, beyond a lot of so-called bad foreign policy decisions. This uh, this is not incompetence. And for our literature recommendation, that's what I'd like to recommend our editor in chief, Mr. Fleury, in his uh, book, America Under Attack, has a chapter called This Is Not Incompetence. It focuses on the Afghanistan debacle and some of the uh, surrounding issues and and backstory on why it's not just incompetence, why it's Mr. Fleury has often said it's treason of what happened in Afghanistan, bad for the American people and bad for the Afghani people, as we can see now. So if our listeners would be interested, I would recommend them read This Is Not Incompetence in America Under Attack. Thank you, Mr. Zekic, for bringing Afghanistan back back into focus for us. That was such a a disaster. I remember watching that unfold, and and even at the time, fearing that it would fade into the into the background, and it even has uh, just because of all the other uh, crises whirling around. But that's what we have you guys for is to sort through all the all the crises and bring out the most important ones. Another edition of the Twitter files has dropped. Andrew Miller has been covering the Twitter files from the beginning for Trumpet Hour, and he brings us this update. Yeah, earlier this year, I had a, a good eight-week one run, I think, where I covered the Twitter files every week. Uh, it's been a little bit. It's uh, They've been releasing them less frequently, but it was just over a week ago, uh, investigative journalist Matt Taibe released a 50-tweet thread that's being labeled Twitter Files Part 17. Uh, this thread reveals that the U.S. State Department was working with the Atlantic Council's digital forensic lab to censor 40,000 Twitter accounts associated with India's Bharatiya Janata Party. Now, that's actually pretty shocking for <laughs> for two reasons. One of this particular Indian political party is not some obscure Hindu death cult or something like that, but actually the ruling political party of the world's largest democracy, India. It's the party that Narendra Modi, the prime minister of India, belongs to. So the fact that the State Department wasn't even allowing these counts on Twitter uh, is a pretty shocking example of censorship in and of itself, uh, but even more shocking and perhaps predictively when they actually looked through the internal emails and the Twitter files, they found that many of those 40,000 Twitter accounts had nothing to do with that political party uh, or even anything to do with India, but were just run-of-the-mill American conservative accounts that the State Department was censoring 
by falsely accusing them of being linked to Bertia Janata. Yeah, a big, a big story on censorship, uh, something that shouldn't be shocking to those who've gone through the first 16 part of the Twitter files, uh, because we have numerous evidence that the State Department was involved in this type of activity. Really, the biggest new angle from Twitter files part 17 is the role of the Atlantic Council. Uh, that's a council, uh, it's a think tank, an American think tank founded in 1961 to promote better relationships between America and Europe. And a think tank that's also been very supportive of European Union laws uh, that also are trying to control the content on Twitter. And so uh, we've already gotten a good uh, view from the Twitter files of how the American State Department and the FBI and the Obama administration and the Democratic Party were censoring free speech. Now getting into the organizations like the Atlantic Council, you're seeing how some of the same transatlantic political groups are censoring free speech in both the United States and Europe, uh, which really takes this uh, <laughs> this whole censorship thing to... Uh, a whole nother level. It's not just the Democratic Party against American conservatives, but really like the deep state uh, against <laughs> against conservative movements uh, in two continents. And so um, in the show notes, to kind of put this all in prophetic perspective, we can put uh, our editor, ch editor-in-chief, Mr. Gerald Flurry's most recent article on the Twitter files, uh, which is called Barack Obama and the, the Twitter files, uh, that highlights the fact that basically this entire industrial censorship complex was up and running the day... Donald Trump took office on January 20th, 2017, uh, and the Twitter files have exposed that corruption, but they, they still have not, uh, they still have not gone back and exposed any of the files from before January 20th, 2017, and showing how the, it was really the Obama administration that put the infrastructure in place that's allowing the organizations like the Atlantic Council to control what people in the United States and even Europe <laughs> say um using um using this new technology i do recommend to our listeners to go to the trumpet.com find barack obama and the twitter files that will open your eyes that opened my eyes uh, to how significant government control of social media specifically twitter uh is so it, it'll it'll really help you to see the, the Twitter files revelations in, in a new light. So thank you, Mr. Miller, for that. I'm Philip Nice, and that's it for today's Trumpet Hour. Email us your thoughts on the program to letters at thetrumpet.com. We do want to hear from you. We do like to see what, you, what you're thinking. Thanks to our panel, Richard Palmer, Andrew Miller, Rufaro Manyepa, and Mihailo Zekic. And thanks to Parker Campbell and Jesse Hester for engineering and production. And also, thank you to Trumpet Hour originator and host, Joel Hilliker. He was sitting in with us today. Mr. Hilliker broadcasted, by my count, more than 700 episodes of Trumpet Hour. And now he's turned over that task to me and to Jeremiah Jocks as Mr. Hilliker takes on, well, even more work. Big shoes to fill. Thank you, everybody, for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world.